Psalm 15, if you're able to, please stand as I read. Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Let me pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, help us in these very important moments that we have, help us to listen to you, to hear your voice this morning. Inspire us with your truth. Convict us, Lord, of our sins. Encourage us with the hope and the grace of the gospel. Grant us courage and strength to, to live what we know is the truth. That is your truth. And not just to to live this truth out, Lord, but to do it with joy. A joy that comes because we, we belong to you. You are our God, and we are your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So far in our series here in the, the Psalms this summer, we've learned a couple of really important truths. Number one... The Psalms and the psalmist himself expresses a wide variety of emotions, intense emotions, raw emotions, real emotions nonetheless. Desperation, anxiety, joy, hope, whatever it is that you might be feeling right now, whatever it is you might feel next Monday night or even a month from now, you can be assured that you will find it somewhere in the Psalms. So we have an advocate for our souls in the Psalms. Here's the the second thing we've learned. The Psalms ask some very important questions. Questions that maybe we are a little slow to ask, or perhaps questions that we dare not ask, that we are maybe even afraid to ask. As we've learned here, the Psalmist is clearly not afraid to ask some very hard questions about God, about life, about the way this world works, about what happens when it doesn't work as we think it should, questions about truth, questions about justice. It's important, brothers and sisters, not just that we, we, we study these questions, but that we actually study the answers that God actually gives to us about some of these very, very important questions, because as you well know, We live in a time in a world where we are bombarded with all kinds of answers to really the questions that the psalmist is actually asking. The question before us here in Psalm 15, it's actually a a simple enough question, at least to ask, but it's a whole lot more difficult to answer. It's actually the ultimate question that we find here in Psalm 15. 
How good is good enough? How good is good enough for God? How good does a person have to be to to live with him, to, to enjoy communion with him? I mean, who's qualified to live with God in his presence forever? How good is good enough? Now, that's not just a good question. That is, in fact, a gospel question that, that actually gets to the very, the very heart, the very epicenter of all that we believe here as Christians about the truth of the gospel, the saving work of Jesus Christ. So is there a more important question for us to ask? It's certainly more important than trying to figure out what school you're going to go to this fall, what classes you're going to take, or even the eventual career that you might choose. Those are important questions, to be sure. It's actually even more important than a man or woman that you choose to date or the one that you perhaps eventually will choose to marry. It's more important than trying to figure out your five-year plan or trying to figure out what retirement might look like. It's actually more important than going home this afternoon and walking through your house and trying to figure out what things need to be fixed, what things need to be repaired, and what needs to go to goodwill. All important things. But a hundred years from now, none of those questions are going to matter. But this question from Psalm 15, this will matter for all eternity. Here again is how David voices it. Look with me at verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, David's here not asking a theoretical question. He's not asking a philosophical question. Most theologians believe that he actually asked this question and and then wrote this psalm right after he oversaw the Ark of the Covenant and its return back to Jerusalem where it was placed in the tent on Mount Zion. Literally, it was placed on that holy hill. And so in that moment, David is confronted with the overwhelming presence and grandeur and glory and majesty and holiness and awesomeness of God. David was in the very presence of God himself on that hill. And in that moment, David was humbled, as you and I would be. And the Bible goes to great lengths over and over, and yes, over and over again, to remind us that God is not like us. He is Pastor Paul already mentioned, he is holy other, Isaiah 43, verse 10. Before me, no God was formed, no shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is not a Savior. So David is in the, in the presence of God where he sees his glory and his majesty, and so David does the, the sanest thing that you and I, a person, could do when confronted with the glory of God in that moment. He asks, Lord, who can live here? Who's qualified? Given your absolute perfection and glory, how good do you have to be to live with you? So understand, brothers and sisters, in that moment, David is, he's not asking, Lord, who can talk to you every now and again, or especially when life gets hard. Or, hey, God, can I just pop in every now and again, maybe have a sidebar conversation with you? 
You know, the words that David uses here, those two words, sojourn and dwell, those are familiar words for the Israelites. They're packed with spiritual significance. They're, they both essentially mean the same thing. They're, they're really metaphors. There's pictures here of what it means to live and to commune with God, to have that sort of intimacy with Almighty God. You may remember the tent or the tabernacle that represented the centrality of God's presence with his people, with the Israelites. So if you're an Israelite and you wanted to meet with God, well, what do you do? You journey, you sojourn to the tent because that's where God is. That's where God meets with his people. So again, you may remember through the book of Exodus, as the people of God are on this incredible journey to the promised land, over and over again, they are told, don't stray far from the tent. In fact, in God's kind grace, he ensured that the tent would go with them on this journey. He was reminding them that if, if he did not go with them, they would not make it to the promised land at all. That's Exodus 33, verse 15. Who can sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell, David asks, on your holy hill? It's the same idea here. Again, I think the the holy hill is actually a a reference back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2, God's dwelling place on earth, and it it was a place of unhindered, uninterrupted, unhurried, unforgettable communion with God that Adam and Eve experienced in Genesis 1 and 2. It was a place there on that holy hill where there was a palpable, incredibly real sense of God's glory and his majesty. That must be a great place to be, wouldn't it? This psalm is meant, brothers and sisters, to to stir our longings for that, to stir our longings for God, yes, our longings for that kind of communion with him, even more, our longings for heaven, where every believer in Jesus Christ will live with him in that new Eden, in that new paradise. Now, maybe that sounds farciful to you or fanciful or unrealistic this morning, No doubt it's a challenge for all of us to to long for heaven when when we're really tied to the things of this earth. David's question here in verse 1 is not, hey, Lord, is it okay if I visit you every now and again? Is it okay maybe if I stop by when it kind of works with my schedule? David's asking, how do I live here? Who can possibly live with you, God, a God who is holy, other, how good? How good does a person need to be in order to live with you, O God, forever? Were you good enough this last week, do you think, to live with this God, to commune with him? Several years ago, I was, I was in seminary, and I was, uh, had to be, I had to be, I, I was. It was a joy to be the substitute teacher for this uh, little class of, of boys, I think they were maybe grade one and two, what, six, seven years old. I didn't have any time to prepare, they just kind of needed somebody, so I went in there and somehow we got, uh, let's talk about the gospel, and I, I think the question was, well, boys, how good do you think you need to be in order to get to heaven? And of course, all their hands went up. But the first hand I saw was 
Johnny. His name was actually Johnny. And little Johnny, I was like, okay, Johnny, go for it. How good do you think you need to be in order to get to heaven? And Johnny says, gooder. <laughs> he almost said it as a question too. Like he knows the answer, but I, is that right? Gooder. Well, Johnny's on to something, isn't he? Gooder. Far gooder. It's not a word, I know that, but it doesn't stop us from massacring the English language. We seem to be doing that in our day. But to live with God, I think I need to be gooder. That's probably the, the answer that you might receive if you're talking to a friend or a neighbor. I probably need to be better than I am, yeah? But who gets to define what's good then? Is that something we do ourselves? We have our own standard of goodness? Is that something that maybe we work in concert with God that we, we kind of go so far and then he comes in? Or how do we determine what is good? You may ask a a friend or a colleague too, and you might hear, well, I'm, I'm really hoping, kind of hoping that God accepts me. I mean, doesn't he kind of accept everyone? I mean, I try hard, I'm sincere, I try to stay away from really, really big sins, if I even believe in sin. Or perhaps you are liable to hear that, well, uh, if there is a God, and I'm not saying there is, I, he must be kind, he must be compassionate, he must be the kind of God that pretty much lets anyone into heaven because the thought of a God who doesn't, well, that's pretty terrifying and actually hell seems pretty terrifying. And indeed, hell, hell should be terrifying. But it doesn't become less terrifying by ignoring it or kind of choosing your own spiritual adventure and hoping that it just kind of works out in the end. And perhaps you're here this morning, though, and, and you're already starting to feel the weightiness of Psalm 15, and you know that maybe even on your best days, it is a struggle, and you still wonder and you doubt, is, is God really going to love me all the way to the end? Because I do fail and I do falter. Is he really going to love me all the way to heaven? Well, David answers this ultimate question here, really verses two through five. Let me read it, and then we'll discuss it. Here's his answer. He who walks blamelessly does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, or takes up reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Now, many agree that verse 2 is actually the answer. So David asked the question in verse 1, and really, verse 2 is his answer, with verses 3 through 5, really just an extrapolation of that. He's rounding out the picture, giving us a few more details, filling in the details. Regardless, as I studied these verses this past week, meditated on them and did what I ask you to do every week, which is pay attention to what's going on inside your own heart, take heed to yourself, it was humbling. And if I'm really honest, and so yes, let me be honest, probably more than humbling, just devastating. Because I know I don't measure up every minute of every day. And so if verses 2 through 5, if that's the bar, even on our best days, none of us is, is clear in that. So David here describes the, the righteous man, the kind of person 
who is qualified, who, who actually is good enough to enjoy God's presence. And depending on how you count here, there are about 10 qualifications here in these three verses, which by my, my count is probably nine more than we actually need in order to be sufficiently humbled. How good is good enough for God? David says, verse 2, well, we are to live blamelessly, to practice righteousness and acknowledge the truth in our hearts. And to be blameless doesn't mean to be sinlessly perfect, as if there is some, some point of sinless perfection that you and I can get to this side of eternity, and once we get there, then God will say, okay, good, come on in, you can live with me. And to be blameless, which we actually read about in the Bible well over 100 times, it, it means to be whole. In other words, to, to live a life of integrity, no duplicity. So I'm sure you've heard the phrase, well, that, that guy walks the walk and talks the talk. You've probably also heard the phrase, that guy talks the talk, but he doesn't walk the walk. There's, there's a duplicity in his heart. He's a different guy. David is saying here that the one who is qualified to live in the presence of God, the one who's good enough for God, well, he talks the talk and he walks the walk. This person is both whole and holy in his conduct, in his actions, in his words. Now, this kind of blamelessness, this, this life of integrity that David is, is teaching us here, that's actually one of the defining marks of what it means to be really a great man or a great woman in the Bible. You may remember Noah, Genesis 6 9. Far from perfect. Already, by the time we get there. But Noah was a blameless man in his generation, Scripture says. It was also said of Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, verse 6, that they were blameless before the Lord. So this life of blameless integrity seems to be in short supply in our world today. Yet a blameless person, that's the kind of person you want to marry. It's the kind of boss that you hope for. It's the kind of employee that you dream of. It's the kind of friend that you look for. It's the kind of heart that you want more and more in increasing and increasing measure. I was on a church staff with a friend of mine named John several years ago. Uh, John and his wife were missionaries overseas for some 35, maybe even 40 years, and they came back to the States, and John began to work part-time at the church. I think he, his official title was pastor to seniors. I guess one day John discovered that, well, he, he was a senior, and so it was probably time to retire. And so that's what he did, and church threw a, a really wonderful retirement party for John in the basement of the church. Many people got up that day, spoke very kind words, very true words about John. But I'll never forget what his son said. His son really wrapped up that whole evening, and he said, you know what, the best thing I can say about my dad is that the, the guy you saw on Sunday morning was the same guy that I saw Monday night. He was the same guy. So whether he was ministering and serving and praying with you, or whether he was just hanging out at home, cutting the grass, throwing the football around, he was the same guy. No duplicity. Blameless. Life of integrity. What a God-honoring tribute for John. David asks, who's good enough for God? His answer is, he who walks blamelessly 
and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. So brothers and sisters, the kind of the kind of blamelessness that David's talking about here, that kind of spiritual blamelessness must begin in your heart. It has to begin in my heart. And when the Bible talks about the heart and speaks about the heart, which it does, many, many occurrences, it's always referring to, to the very core of who you are, really the very essence of who you are. The, the heart is the real you, whether there's a lot of people around who are watching or whether nobody's around. So your heart is the motivational core of, of who you are. So think of your heart, your spiritual heart, as kind of like a, the spiritual central nervous system. It's the command center that controls your thoughts and your desires and your emotions and your actions and responses. Your heart, your spiritual heart determines what you do and why. So we often talk about we, we live out of our hearts, and that's what we mean by that. Whatever it is that's going on inside of our hearts, that struggle, that war, whatever we're loving, treasuring, valuing, desiring, well, ultimately that's going to come out in, through our words or through our actions. Your heart is always worshiping, desiring, treasuring, responding to the people and the circumstances and the situation around you. So that's why, husbands, you, you can't say that your wife made you lose your temper. That's your heart. And wives, you can't say that your husband caused you to sin. It's not your boss. It's not your friend. It's not your frustratingly, not your frustrating neighbor. It's not the reason why you gave in and let loose with callous or sinful words. Because the Bible over and over again drives us and is constantly driving us in one direction, our hearts. And so we need to pay attention to whatever it is that's going on inside of our hearts. And frankly, this is where we can really love each other because we, we, don't, tend to, we don't tend to know our hearts all that well. So we need other people to help us who love us enough to tell us the truth about what they might be seeing about what's going on inside of our hearts. And that's what was so humbling and even devastating for me in studying this this last week. I don't always, I don't always want what God wants. I don't always desire what God desires. I don't always do what God does. So the Lord is after my heart, and he's after your heart this morning. And if there's to be any change in any of us, that's where it has to begin, your heart. More and more to allow the Holy Spirit to take up residence, for the Holy Spirit to dwell and to rule in your heart. I suppose we could just stop here in verse 2. That's probably enough. See you next week, maybe. But David continues, so we'll continue. He describes the righteous man here, the man who is good enough to live in God's presence. And in verse 3, you'll notice that all three of these qualifications in verse 3 actually describe what not to do. This is kind of the anti-Leviticus 19.18, which actually tells us that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. So the one who can live in God's presence 
does not slander his neighbor, does not do any evil to his neighbor, does not do anything to discredit his neighbor. So it's, it's really a broad sweeping statement from David here that has to do with our relationships with our neighbor, our relationships with each other. We're not to think, say, or do anything unloving to another person. You do your neighbor no wrong. Now, who's your neighbor? Well, it's not just the family that moved in next door. David's not speaking sort of geographically here. Biblically speaking, according to the parable of the Good Samaritan, that's in Luke chapter 10, your neighbor is anyone whose need you are aware of and whose need that you are able to meet. Let me say that again. Your neighbor is anyone whose need you are aware of in some way. And it's a need that you could possibly, potentially meet. That's the person that we're supposed to care about, that we're supposed to love. So in that sense, we got a lot of neighbors, don't we? A whole lot of neighbors. Think about this last week. You, were, you came in contact with a lot of different neighbors, didn't you? And we're to do no wrong to any of them. Now, when David says here, here says that here, that's not just an exhortation like to, to not steal your neighbor's stuff. So like if his garage door is open, you take his rake, you take his bike, and you think, I'll bring it back to him later. I mean, please do bring it back to him. But, but David is saying much more than that. He's actually saying you're, you're to actively look out for your neighbor's best interest, even more than your own. So if you See your neighbor's garage door open and all this lovely stuff there. Maybe you go knock on the door and just say, hey, did you know that, you know, your, your garage door is open? I don't want any of that to be stolen. It's actively love. It's, it's the kind of thing when, you, you know, your boss ought to see you as trustworthy this week. If he or she forgets his, their phone on the conference table and, you know, he, he, he or she trusts you enough that you're not going to start rifling through the texts and the emails and try and figure out who... Who's getting the promotion? Who's getting canned? The person whose heart is ruled by God, the one who can live in his presence, wouldn't speak ill against another person, not even in a moment of impatience or frustration. <sighs> this is getting heavier, isn't it? If you're still not humbled, well, let's go to verse 4. Here we have a picture then of the person who who loves the right things and hates the evil things. He's grieved over evil and rejoices in the good. Again, church, a key aspect of practical godliness, of growing to become more like Christ, is more and more to learn to hate sin, to actually be repulsed by sin, and to love what God loves, to, to love Him even more. In other words, that the sin becomes less attractive and less seductive. And the only way that sin becomes less attractive and less seductive is, that, is, 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 that, is how we're actively learning to love God more, to treasure Him more, to value Him more, to take joy in the things that He says are the right things to be joyful about. Without being legalistic, how easy is it for you to find entertaining, even pleasurable things that God actually calls evil. 
Usually we say something like this, you know, I just need, just need to blow off some steam. It's been a long, hard week, a long, hard month. I'm just going to pop in the video. I'm just going to stream this Netflix show, whatever, and just got to put my, I just don't want to think about anything. We call that mindless entertainment. There's no such thing as mindless entertainment. It involves your mind. It involves your heart. It involves your soul. It involves all that. And so in the interest of mindless entertainment, have you, have you lost maybe a little bit of your spiritual edge? Maybe you've lost a lot of spiritual edge. Now you're at the point this morning where, well, you really don't have a big problem being entertained or finding pleasure in things that God actually calls evil. Well, it's not too late. It's not too late to repent. It's not too late to turn back to God. First John 2, 15, if you love him, you're going to love the things that he loves. If you love the world and the things of this world, the love of the Father is not in you. And so we have here that the truly righteous person is, loves the things that God loves and at least is learning to really hate the things that God hates, even if he knows it's going to cost him. Even when he knows that it, that's going to cost him. That's what it means to swear to his own hurt. It means that the, the truly righteous person, that man or woman, is going to keep his commitment, going to honor his commitment, is going to keep his word, is going to keep his promise, even at great personal cost. Nobody really has a problem honoring a commitment or keeping a word if there's some benefit that we get in return. But what happens when the situation changes and the circumstances is such that in order for you to keep your word, to honor your commitment, it's going to cost you. It might cost you financially, relationally, emotionally. It's going to cost you to keep your word, to keep your promises. I have a good friend who works in the construction industry, and apologies if you also work in that industry or if you know and love someone who does. But according to my friend, many in that industry seem to have a mindset that says, hey, that's not my problem, that's not my deal, you deal with it. And they just kind of move on. My friend has a different take for as much as it depends on him, and not everything depends on him, but he says for as much as it does depend on him, when he's on the construction site, he takes the attitude that, you know, that, that is my problem and I'm going to deal with it and I'm going to keep my word, I'm going to honor my word, even if others around me don't, and even if it means I'm going to take a financial hit. Well, no surprise. The Lord's blessing him. Blessing his business for these many years, and the Lord has prospered him. The one who's good enough for God to live in his presence, David says, will keep his word, no matter what. Well, verse 5, at this point, I don't think we're at all surprised by what we're going to read there. Verse 5 has to do with money, has to do with being blameless with our money. Now, all of these qualifications, as you are aware, they all have to do with our hearts. But in talking about money here, it's as if David takes dead aim in a bullseye at our hearts. Materialism, or the love of money, even the worship of money. That's about as American as, I guess, apple pie. That's what people tell me. 
Now here's the context. The the Old Testament law forbade changing interest to a fellow Israelite, basically to protect the poor. So we read in Exodus 22, verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. So those who needed to borrow money were those who were in great distress. They were in financial ruin. So this is not consumer lending as we might think about it. Dan the Israelite was not looking to buy a bigger boat or a larger house. Dan the Israelite was going to his fellow Israelite because his crops had failed, because he, had, he was destitute, because his clan and his family had nothing to eat. And so the principle here is that the rich were not to take advantage of Dan the Israelite and to charge them interest on that. And really, so underneath that, here's the principle, church. It's people over money. People are more important than money. And yes, that probably needs to be nuanced. It does need to be nuanced. It's not a blanket statement there, but it does mean here that a godly righteous person doesn't use his or her money to gain an advantage against another person. So he's not going to take a bribe, no matter how enticing it may be in the moment. To our ultimate question, how good is good enough for God? Now, you might hear these 10 qualifications here in Psalm 15, and already you're starting to go through your week. It's, you're sort of treating this like a spiritual checklist, and so you look back and say yesterday, well, I, that was a 4 for 10 day. And uh, actually, Wednesday was even worse. Let's not talk about that. I'm hoping tomorrow is a, maybe a 6 out of 10. That, that would not be the right way to read that. This isn't a list of do's and don'ts. These are the qualifications that reveal the kind of person that can enter God's presence, that can live with God. So they give us a a true picture of the kind of moral purity and holiness that is necessary to live in God's presence forever. In fact, verse 5, there is a promise here that he who does these things, in other words, he whose heart produces this kind of blameless living, well, that person, what? Shall never be moved. He's going to make it. She's going to make it. And God will ensure it all the way to heaven. So does that describe you this morning? Are you that kind of person this morning? Are you the kind of person that shall not be moved from living a blameless life? No matter what laws come down the freeway, no matter how hard the cultural winds may be blowing directly in your face, no, you have committed, you shall not be moved from living a blameless life. Just think of the last week of your life. Were you always blameless in word, in thought, in deed? Did you always seek the truth? Were you always putting your neighbor's needs because they were there and your neighbor is your spouse or your children or your parent or your colleague at work, even your enemy? Were you always putting those needs ahead of your own? I mean, the truth is, brothers and sisters, we all fall short. We don't measure up. We're not. We're not good enough in our natural self 
And that is, in fact, the point of Psalm 15. You know, Psalm 15, brothers and sisters, it's, it's actually not meant to comfort us, at, at least not immediately. It's actually meant to, to crush us. It's meant to show us that we're, we're never going to be the kind of people that can just sort of saunter into heaven, into God's presence. Here I am. It's meant to strip us of whatever personal sense of righteousness we thought we had. It's meant to get us to abandon all efforts to try and earn our way, earn enough merit points for God to deserve heaven. It's actually meant to get us to humble ourselves, fall on our knees, and to cry out to God for more mercy. He's the one that's altogether righteous. So this psalm actually points us beyond ourselves to the only one who's actually qualified to live with God in his presence forever. So again, these 10 qualifications here, this isn't a checklist that you leave thinking, okay, well, I wonder if I'm worthy to enter God's presence. You're not. I'm not. None of us are. The people around us know it. But these qualifications remind us that apart from God's divine rescue, none of us can enter his presence and live with him. Not now, not ever. So this psalm describes the perfect man, describes Jesus. The psalm is all about Jesus. And in pointing us to Christ, well, yes, we do actually find comfort for our souls. Because Jesus was the only one who lived blamelessly all the time. Jesus was the only one who always did what was righteous in some very hard situations. Jesus was the only one who spoke truth from his heart, who never did wrong to his neighbor, who honored those who feared the Lord. Jesus was, in fact, the one who kept his word to God the Father that he would give up his own life on the cross even and because when it did kill him. Only Christ measures up. He was accepted by God because of his blameless life. We are accepted by God because of his blameless life, not ours. It's in Jesus keeping the qualifications and the commandments. That's what saves us. And that's what's so great about the gospel. That's what's so freeing about the gospel when we really begin to understand it, church. Because the gospel isn't a declaration, I'm okay, I'm good, hopefully good enough. No, the the gospel is a declaration that says Christ is good. He has given his goodness to people who are not. So being a Christian, being a Christian is actually a declaration, I'm not very good. Even on my best days, I don't measure up. And Jesus knows that. And he's done something about that. Jesus is more than good enough for me. Jesus is that good. Jesus loves you that much. He's more than enough good for you. And there's something wonderfully freeing and joy-producing when in the presence of God, as David was in Psalm 15 and as we are this morning, to be able to confess before God, you know what, Lord, I... 
I don't measure up. I don't have it within me. I'm never going to have it within me. But I'm trusting in Christ and all of his sufficiencies and all of his excellencies. And when you put your faith in Christ, he declares you righteous. So if you're a Christian this morning, I'm looking at you and you're a saint. God has declared you to be a saint. That's incredible. (laughs) And you're looking at me thinking, is he also a saint? (laughs) By virtue of putting your faith in Christ, his righteousness becomes ours. So we Christians really ought to be the happiest, most joyful people on the planet because we actually know the truth. We're not running from the truth. We're not ignoring the truth, but we embrace the truth. We're not good enough for God, but God has made a way for us to live with him in his presence forever and to begin to enjoy at least a taste of heaven while we live here on this earth. So how good, how good do you need to be in order to be a member here at GCF? How good do you need to be to lead a home group or be a discipleship group leader or to serve in some area of ministry? How good do you need to be in order to preach? or to teach. How good is good enough for God? Well, according to my young theologian friend, Johnny, gooder, far, far gooder. But none of us measure up, even on our best good days. Christ has qualified us through his death, burial, and resurrection that you and I, by putting our faith and trust in him, putting all our chips in on Jesus. He's qualified us to live with a holy God for all eternity. Some of you this morning may be trying to be right with God without actually being first right with God, without being found righteous in him. This would be a good day to abandon your efforts to try and prove yourself to God to try and prove that maybe you don't really need a savior. You sort of need a savior, but not really. Turn to Christ, who was approved by God, and you'll find rest for your soul. Church, Psalm 15 kind of shouts at us that we have, to be, we have to first be crushed by the gospel before we can be comforted by it. We have to first understand our great, desperate, ongoing need for Christ so that we then can be comforted by him and by his grace and mercy. That's what this psalm is intended to do. You can't win his favor. You can't earn his applause. You can't earn spiritual bonus points. But you know what you can do? You can turn to him in faith, and he'll accept you. You can learn to trust him this week more than you did this last week. You can repent of your sins quickly, You can cry out to him for more grace because, frankly, life is hard and there are situations and circumstances that surprise us, challenge us. We need his help. We need more help. You can continue to ask God to grow you, to change you, to transform your heart, to make you a little bit more like Jesus this week than you were this last week. You can actually leave here, brothers and sisters, knowing in your heart that God's love for you, that his affection for you, it's not based on how well or how many of these 
10 qualifications that you got right. Because as a blood-bought child of God, he has set his love on you through the perfect man, Jesus Christ. So it's never too late to start with God. And it's never too late to start again with him. Let's pray. God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Our God, we are rightly humbled, but we're also comforted in knowing that you are the God who spared not even your own son, but you graciously offer Jesus to be our Savior. He lived the life that none of us could live. You have not spared anything from us. And indeed, you will graciously give us all things. Father, we're starting to figure that out, I trust, at least a little bit. I pray that you would, this day and this week, continue to pile drive the gospel deep in our hearts, in our weaknesses, in our sins, when we don't measure up. Help us to turn quickly to you, to find grace and mercy and hope, even joy in Christ our Savior. It's in his name that I pray, amen.